We've been working through the significance of what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. And this Lord's Day asks us, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the answer is that first, by His resurrection, He has overcome death, so that He might make us share in the righteousness He obtained for us by His death. Second, by His power, we too are already raised to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be careful about symbols. Symbols can be very helpful to us. There's no question about it. A red cross on a battlefield can show that the person bearing it is not a combatant, but is instead there to help, is instead there to provide medical care. That's a very helpful symbol. Two tiny little feet made into a pin for your lapel is a symbol that reminds us that a child is a child, even when its feet are that tiny, even when it's only ten weeks after conception. That is a helpful symbol. So they can be. Symbols can be very helpful, but they also can be misleading. Because seldom do symbols get posted with an explanation. We assume that people understand their significance. We hope they don't misinterpret them, but there's no guarantee in the symbol itself that that's going to be the case. And so it can be with the cross. The cross can be an extremely helpful symbol for identifying a person or a place as Christian. Our building has a cross on it. It identifies the people who meet here as Christian, as this congregation, as a a Christian church. It tells people this is where you can come to worship Christ the Lord. Churches use the cross because it points to Jesus. He's the one who carried the cross that our sins deserved. He's the one who died on the cross in order to save us. In fact, we might even use the cross as a means of explaining the gospel. After all, the the cross was an instrument of suffering and death, clearly symbolizing the suffering, the death, the destruction that we deserve because of our sin and that he took for us in order to save us. We even sing about the cross, beneath the cross of Jesus, when I survey the wondrous cross. All of that's fine, all of that's helpful. However, however, we need to be careful that we don't inadvertently Limit the gospel to the cross. You see, Jesus' work climaxed on the cross, but it encompassed so very much more. The things about which our children will sing tonight with the birth of Jesus as one of us, weak and small and humble, that's the gospel. The ministering of Jesus among those who were lost and broken and often scorned. That's the gospel. His suffering and death, certainly we understand that that's the gospel, but also the empty tomb, the resurrection is essential to the gospel. And so too, the ascension and his work today for us in heaven is all part of the gospel. And so our catechism reminds us with these truths encompassed in Lord's Day 17 that when we consider the gospel and our faith, 
our confidence. We can't stop with the cross, right? We have to go beyond that. We have to see the cross and the humiliation of our Savior, but we also have to see the triumph that followed, the victory that followed after it. And so our theme here this evening is simply this, that God the Son arose from death in order to draw us into the fullness of life. God the Son arose from death in order to draw us into the fullness of life. And that has three aspects as our catechism showed us. The first of which is by His resurrection, He enlivens us for our justification. So that's our first point. You see, in His work on our behalf, dying was not enough. It was necessary for Jesus to die for us, but that in and of itself was insufficient. Something more was necessary. Jesus also had to rise triumphant over death. See, a warrior, a warrior does no good if he simply goes on the battlefield and dies. Perhaps he died with nobility. Perhaps he fought in a way that was truly impressive. But if he goes to the battlefield and he dies, he hasn't won the victory, has he? But on the other hand, a soldier who goes to the battlefield and is struck down, but then he rises up and he fights anew. He's deeply wounded, but then he gets up and goes on to conquer the enemy. Now that's a victory. That's a conquest, and that's what Jesus did for us. Death was our ancient enemy. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17 warned Adam that there was one tree that he must not eat of. Not because there was anything inherently wrong with the fruit of that tree, but because God had set it as a test. If you would truly put me first, if you would truly acknowledge me as king, you'll leave the fruit of that tree alone. But in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And he did. In that very day, he died in that he was cast off from God. He was cut off from communion with God. He was no longer at peace with the Lord. That's the essence and the fullness of death. And ever since then, death has loomed over the people of God actually loomed over all of mankind. As infants, our parents, especially first-time parents, huddled worriedly over our cribs when we coughed or when we cried incessantly, worried that maybe we're getting sick, maybe something bad is happening. As children, as we grew up, death threatened us from every side with traffic, with sickness, with foolish accidents, as adults, we wrestle with the fact of death when grandparents and later parents die. Death threatens us from our earliest moments and has ever since that first sin of Adam. In fact, Isaiah 25 verse 7 calls death the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. It covers us like a dark cloud. Death is our enemy because it promises to punish us for our sins. You see, the essence of death, the essence of death isn't a lack of a pulse or the silencing of brain waves. The essence of death is to be cut off from God and from all His blessing and from all His good. That's the essence of death. And that's what we deserve in our sin. 
That's what Jesus had to conquer in order to free us. And that's precisely what he did. Romans 4 verse 25 says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He died. And was raised for our justification. Understand, both halves of that were necessary for us to be saved. He had to be delivered up to die. Because death is what we deserve. Because we deserved the curse of God which is encompassed in death. And so he had to die. But then he had to be raised. He had to be resurrected from the dead. Because we needed him to conquer that enemy. We needed him to overcome. And that's what God foretold in Isaiah 25. He said, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And that, my friends, is what Jesus came to do. We heard it in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. And how necessary that was. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, if he had died for our sin but then remained in the grave, there would be no victory. Listen to to what Paul says again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because you see then, he was conquered by the same enemy that conquers every one of us. And there's no change. But Jesus did rise up from the grave. He did conquer death and therefore we live. In his resurrection, death was conquered for us. And Jesus was shown as being powerful enough to apply to us His righteousness, His holiness, His life. And that means that we can be confident. The death that we deserved, Jesus suffered for us. But then He vanquished it. And now, having risen to new life, He has bestowed on His people, He has given to those who have faith the righteousness that He demonstrated in perfectly obeying God. The holiness that he obtained by never, ever, ever falling into sin. We live, we have eternal life, we have been reconciled to God because Jesus not only died but rose again for us. And my friends, we need to celebrate that fact. Don't merely confess the reality of Jesus' resurrection and its results like you're confessing some academic truth. Like you're reciting some geometry proof in an oral exam. No, Christ arose victorious over death for us. We need to rejoice in that. Christ conquered your very worst enemy. We need to sing his praise. Christ changed our very identity in his resurrection. He gave us a brand new address. Our address was the the cemetery. And now he's given us an address in the new heavens and the new earth. We need to celebrate that and confess it for all to hear. Rejoice in his resurrection from the dead, knowing that he was enlivened for your justification, for your reconciliation with God. And recognize well that this is not merely a we'll enjoy that privilege later kind of a truth. It has a here and now implication. Our second point is that he arose from death to empower us For our sanctification. Remember, 
What we saw last week, if you were here last week, we're joined to Jesus by our faith. That means that when we trust in Him, when we truly understand what He has done and we believe that He did it for us, that spiritually joins us to Jesus so that what He did is counted as us having done in God's sight. That means that when, when Jesus died on the cross, all of those who have faith in Him in God's sight died. All of us suffered the consequence for our sin in God's sight. That's what imputation does. But more than that, in His resurrection, we also arose with Christ. And that has significant implications. When we looked at Jesus' death last week, we saw that He was given, or that we've been given power through His death. We were born into slavery. We had slavery, or sin had power over us that was just as real as if we were bound to it by chains. But when Jesus died, all of those who have faith in him, that that chain fell off. For every one of us who trusts in Jesus, that chain fell off. No longer were we bound to sin. No longer were we required by our very corrupt nature to continue in that rebellion. Now we have the freedom to not sin. And the same holds true with his resurrection. His power, the power of a resurrection life now belongs to us. And so not only are we freed from sin, we now have the power to do what is good and what is right. Thus Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, himself, or loved me and gave himself for me. Think about what that means. The power of Jesus Christ. Who after fasting for 40 days had the power to say no to Satan when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread. The power of Jesus Christ who understanding how horrific would be the cross, rejected the temptation of Satan when Satan said, all you have to do is bow before me and you can avoid all of that suffering. The power and the conviction of Jesus Christ, who's standing on the very cusp of the suffering and death of the cross, weeping tears and blood, was able to pray to God, yet not my will, but your will be done. That's the power that now belongs to us because of his resurrection. And our calling is to believe it and to embrace it. Consider well the encouragement that we find in Colossians 3. There the apostle urges us, if you have been raised with Christ, which if you have faith in him, you have. Then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Through faith we've been raised with Christ. We're united to Him in His resurrection. For you have died, He says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. Today you live united to Jesus. And therefore, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Desire the things of heaven. Desire the things that delight the Lord. How do you do that? You spend time studying God 
in his word. You spend time studying the ways and the character of God. You spend time in prayer, communing with the Lord, coming to understand him better, learning how to think his thoughts after him. You spend time with one another, sharpening, building, strengthening one another so that more and more together we learn how to think the thoughts of Christ and desire the things of Christ. And if you are doing that, he says, you will put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death. Refuse to entertain the things that speak of sin. Put to death. Refuse to give ground the temptations that surround you. Put to death through prayer and through accountability that which would dishonor God. Put it all to death because that's no longer who you are in Christ. And instead, says Paul, Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Put on like a coat. These attitudes which reflect the character and the heart of Christ. Embrace as your true identity those ways which will show Christ to those around you. Because that, in the resurrection of Christ, is who you now are. And that is what you have the power to do through his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, that's the here and now implication of being joined to Jesus' resurrection. We are able, we have the power by Christ... To show his character to the world. No longer do we need to be vindictive. No longer do we need to dwell on those offenses that have been uh, acted against us. No longer do we need to fall prey to all the temptations and snares that Satan sets before us. No longer. That's not us anymore. We have the power not only to say no to that. But to say yes to compassion, to mercy, to holiness, to love, to faithfulness, to peace, to power. Right? Sometimes that's hard. But it won't always be. Today, it is hard at times to live for Christ because we are surrounded by so many temptations, because we are surrounded by so many terrible examples, and because we suffer the effects of living in a fallen world. We suffer the effects of being afflicted by the fallenness of this world and fighting against our old nature. All of that conspires to make it hard to live out that new identity we have in Christ. But it won't always be hard. The day is coming very soon when we will be completely restored, completely glorified. And in Jesus' resurrection, we receive also the assurance of our glorification. That's our third point. That's the third implication of Jesus' resurrection. A few minutes ago, When we looked at Colossians 3, I skipped over verse 4. But there he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that the way we now are is not the way we always will be. Soon, all of this will be changed. Soon... God will reveal the fullness of what Jesus has done. And on that day, when Jesus returns, everyone will be gathered before him. 
And there will be a great separation. For those who rejected Christ in this life, they will have to answer for every one of their sins. They will have to answer for all of their rebellion. That will be an absolutely terrifying, terrible, unthinkable time for them. Because they knew in their hearts that God exists. They knew in their hearts that Christ would judge them one day. And they did everything they could to pretend that it wasn't so. They invented absolutely fanciful theories like evolution so that they could pretend that God doesn't actually exist and that they would never have to stand before His judgment throne. And on that day, they'll know better. But for us, the fullness of that identity that is already ours, the fullness of that power that we already taste, the fullness of that perfection that we're just now beginning to see, will all be ours. In our reading from 1 Corinthians 15, we heard that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that's an important concept that we too seldom discuss. Those who have fallen asleep refers to those who died. Physically, their bodies have ceased to work. No longer are they living and working among us. And Paul says Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep because he too died. His pulse falling to nothing, his, his respiration slowing to a stop, his brain waves registering zero. He entered the grave, his body lying motionless on the cold, cold stone slab, but he did not stay there. On the third day he arose. Death was unable to hold him. He returned to life victorious over death. Now, first fruits. That refers to the very first part of a harvest. That first red ripe tomato that tastes so wonderful on a BLT. Those first green beans that squeak on your teeth. Those first few ears of corn where the kernels just seem to pop off. We absolutely love those first fruits. In part because we've waited so very long for them, right? You finally get that first ear of corn, you can't even wait to cook it. You just eat it out in the garden, right? But we love them too because that first fruit promises so much more. You eat that first ear of corn and you look at the rows that still wait to be picked. You eat that first tomato and you look at the plants with the green ones hanging there waiting to ripen. Well, Jesus was the first fruits from the dead. On the day when he comes back, not only will the wicked, not only will the unbelieving be judged. But on the day that He arises, He will bring all of us to the fullness of life. Our bodies will be reconstituted and absolutely perfected. And we will be made whole. As Jesus now is, we shall become. We heard it at the end of our reading, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Today we are perishable. Our bodies can be broken, can be afflicted and wasted by sickness and disease. We're like cardboard and plastic models of what will be. But on that day, we shall become imperishable. No longer will we be weak and fragile and subject to the destruction of this world, but we will be strong and perfect and utterly impervious to harm on that day. No longer shall we be mortal, being subject to death and destruction, but we will be immortal, 
The mortal shall be swallowed up by immortality and eternal life. And there's more. The section preceding that one shows that what shall be on that day is far greater than what is on this day. Paul writes, what is sown is perishable. Now he's referring to our life as though it was a seed that is sown in the ground. When we sow a seed, we're not, we're not planting what is going to become, right? We're planting something much smaller, much less glorious than what we expect to come forth. He says what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. The body in which we live here is filled with weakness. It's perishable, able to be destroyed. It's, it's marked by dishonor through sin and defilement. It's plagued with weakness, physically, mentally, spiritually. But the body we anticipate, the resurrection body we will have is infinitely better. Imperishable and glorious and filled with the power that is given by God Himself. That is the body that is coming and it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Because He has already come back to life. He has already entered into that immortality and imperishability and power and glory demonstrating to us what will be ours on that day. And that, my friends, that is an amazing and glorious assurance for us. We have every reason, based on what what was seen in Christ, based on the promises God has given us in His Word, based on the faithfulness that He's demonstrated to us every single day, we have every reason to believe that the power and the perfection that was seen in Christ when He rose from the dead will soon be ours. So we need to know that. We need to believe that and we need to rejoice in that amazing gift. And therefore we need to live in response to it. The very end of what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 is therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, on the basis of this promise of the resurrection, on the basis of the assurance that we have that as Jesus was raised from the dead, perfected, so we, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast. There are many who would cause you to stumble, many who would seek to dim your fervor. The world itself will do that. We plod through seemingly inconsequential and burdensome tasks in our world and it brings us low. We're surrounded by people who don't want us to be excited about the things of God, who don't want us to be holy rollers, who don't want us to be uh, mentioning Christ in the common things of life. But he says, no, be steadfast. Remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember what is coming and what will be yours. Be steadfast and immovable, no matter what they say about you, no matter how they might slander you, no matter the temptations that are set before you. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is that? The work of the Lord is confessing Christ to all who will hear. The work of the Lord is confessing that all the good in your life is from Him. The work of the Lord is pointing others forward to the good that is coming. The work of the Lord is doing the work that He's set before you. Sometimes common work, kids. Those chores that you do around the house. The babysitting you do for your little siblings. 
That's the work of the Lord if you take it up unto the glory of God. That's the work of the Lord if you take it up in a way that points others to Christ and that uses your gifts to the fullness of your ability. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain because this life is not the end. If this life was the end, it'd all be in vain. How many people worked so hard their life long so that they could build for themselves a memorial, so that they could get their name in plaques and on buildings, so that they could be known all the world wide and what came of them? They became dust. They became food for worms. They ended up in the grave. If we're living for ourselves, if we're living for the moment, that is our end. But if we are found in Christ, if the one whose birth we celebrate is the one we trust for eternal life, then what we do in this world, what we do day to day, has eternal significance. Our labor will never be lost. Because every bit of it is aiming to glorify God and every bit of it is equipping us to live eternally, faithfully before the Lord. But we must keep that eternal perspective. Remembering that in His resurrection He ensured our justification. He empowered our sanctification even now. And He gave us the absolute certainty of the glorification that is to come. So let's trust Him. Let's absolutely believe it. And then let's live in the light of that reality which is ours in the resurrected Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that